You can turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're continuing to look at Matthew's gospel and specifically here the Beatitudes, what's known as the Beatitudes. Uh, the word Beatitudes is not there in the scripture, of course. It comes from the Latin translation when each of these sayings of Jesus begins with, Blessed are those. So this is where that comes from, Beatitude. And last week, we looked at the first of these Beatitudes. And Jesus taught us, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this afternoon, we're looking at the second Beatitude as Jesus teaches us, Blessed are the poor in, or, excuse me, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, last time, if you remember, we ended by pointing out that the entire Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is teaching here, starting with the Beatitudes, but going all the way through chapter 7, Jesus' speech here is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And what he's doing in this sermon is he's giving us the ethos or the nature, the character of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. What does it look like if someone is to enter into Jesus' kingdom? What disposition, what qualities, so to speak, are they going to display? And he starts off by giving these eight qualities in the Beatitudes. And we saw how when someone is really taken up with this teaching, when someone's life is truly transformed, uh, not just being a curiosity seeker of Jesus, delighting in the, the bread and the circuses, so to speak, but someone who's truly a disciple, who has chosen, been drawn to imitate, walk alongside of Jesus, indeed reorganize all of their priorities around him, then that person will stick out from the world around them. As Jesus will say later, light amidst darkness, salt amidst decay. We as Christians, if we're living in the kingdom, will be living fundamentally different identities and priorities in this world. So if you're a Christian, we're not only conscious of this identity, but in fact, we intentionally live it out counterculturally as Christians in this world. And you can see, as we turn towards the second beatitude, how each one of them sort of follows along the other. If you have your Bible open, I encourage you to do this, of course, each Sunday. Uh, but if you do have your Bible open and you sort of scan through the Beatitudes, you can start to think about how it's a, like a chain, each Beatitude being a link in this chain. So someone who is poor in spirit, as we saw last time, truly has realized their spiritual bankruptcy, that they have nothing within themselves to save themselves, then that will naturally lead, you see, to someone who is also mournful, as Jesus talks about here in our text today. Blessed are those who mourn, because if you've come to a realization, I'm spiritually bankrupt, you cannot help but come to a mournful state over your hopelessness. Inevitably, you will grieve. And these are all tied together and blessed are those who mourn. Isn't that a strange statement? We talk about living counterculturally as Christians, sticking out, being resident aliens in this world. Many things in this world are familiar to us. 
and yet we stick out. Well, how much more do we stick out with this beatitude? Blessed are those who mourn. The world hears that and thinks that's strange. I mean, aren't you crazy? It's good to mourn. Surely those who are pained, surely those who are grieved, surely those who are sorrowful, they're not the blessed ones, are they? The happy ones? The world hears that and think we've got it upside down. I mean, isn't it true that the world's beatitudes go something more like this? Happy are those who are hardened in heart because they've been spared all the pains in life. Or happy are all those who are heartless because they've escaped all of life's hurts. Or happy are all those who are entertained because they've become numb to the troubles in life. You see, begin to see how countercultural Jesus' teaching is here already in this second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourning is, is not a popular thing in our world. Crying, grieving, sorrowing over something. Our lives are structured to avoid mourning. Our lives are structured in this world to minimize unpleasantness, to maximize pleasure. And so in this beatitude, Jesus is really standing the world's truth on its head. Blessed are not the callous and uncaring. Blessed are not the entertained to the point of numbness, but blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So our theme, this text, our theme this afternoon is simply this, good morning. Good morning. There is a good morning. So I have uh, several points here, six points. We're going to go through many of these quickly. I'm going to dwell longest on the third point, what is mourning. But we need to first acknowledge and see here when Jesus talks about blessed are those who mourn, that there is a good type of mourning, a good type of grieving, a good type of sorrowing. Christian life, then, is not all smiles and laughter. The Christian life, truth be told, is that there is sorrow of some kind. You know, there are joys in the Christian life, of course. There's tears, though, as well as laughter. In fact, the only way to true and everlasting comfort and joy is through the path of sorrow that Jesus is talking about here. But Jesus does not just teach here that mourners are unhappy, but he is telling us that our mourning will lead to a happy life. That's what Paul says in Romans 5 too. We rejoice in our sufferings, Paul says, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. We, we really need to start off with this and get this right if we're to understand what comes next, because I'm convinced, I I am convinced that the evangelical church in today's world is suffering from a crisis of conviction. I'm not talking about a crisis of conviction when it comes to, is Jesus our savior? Or a crisis of conviction, is the Bible true? 
talking about a crisis of conviction over sin. In the evangelical church, the crisis we have is that we fail to take sin seriously many times. I think the church is, in some places, falling apart because we've failed to take sin seriously, and that is also hurting our witness in the world because our lives just end up mirroring more of the world around us rather than standing out. If the church today thinks that it can have happiness apart from godly grief, then it's mistaken. It's not what Jesus teaches here. It's not what the apostles proclaimed. It's like Paul taught the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 7, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I'm afraid we've become so afraid to talk about sin in many churches today that we're, we're hesitant to confront sin. We're embarrassed to even sorrow over it. And there are preachers who are afraid to preach on it. I know many preachers who are afraid to talk about sin because they don't want people to walk away unhappy. There are churches obsessed with making people happy. Their entire experience of coming to a church on Sunday is so that people will walk away happy and never confronted with the mourning that Jesus is talking about here. So when we leave our sin out, talking about sin, when we leave that out of our witness, we're really leaving the church weaker for it. But beloved, if we're to reclaim our witness in the world, if we're to repair the holiness of the church, we have to live by these beatitudes that Jesus is teaching, including spiritual mourning that leads to true joy and comfort. So there is a good morning, a good morning that will lead to salvation, a good morning that will grieve over sin, that leads us to joy. And if we're to help lead each other towards God's comfort, then we need to understand what true mourning is not. When Jesus talks about mourning here, what is he not talking about and what is he talking about? So this is my second point, what mourning isn't. When we think of mourning, we usually think of mourning that Jesus is talking about here, perhaps in something like grieving over death, the loss of life, or we think of in terms of a disappointing setback in life. If you've lost your job, if you have lost a friend, if you have a bad grade in class, or maybe you've lost faith, faith, excuse me, lost face in front of other people, we think of these difficulties and these setbacks as things to mourn over. This is what we sometimes think of when it comes to mourning. But that's not necessarily what Jesus has to say here. Nor is mourning just a physical weeping of tears. Just a shedding of tears that Jesus says anybody who cries, anybody who has an emotional sort of burst is the one who's blessed. And there are some Christians who actually teach this. Some sects or cults, they take this to the extreme. They will say, unless you physically weep, then you don't have any sign that you're a born-again Christian. Uh, almost to the almost similar to how, what Pentecostals teach. If you don't uh, speak in tongues or something like this, then, it's, then you, don't, you don't have a sign, a second blessing that the Spirit is in your life. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. 
Jesus is not saying you have to physically weep over your sins as a sign of a second blessing of the Spirit or something like that. Nor is Jesus saying that Christians need to be miserable all the time. Jesus is not saying there has to be a spiritual sort of depression that plagues every single Christian. A dourness or pessimism. That's not the case either. I think contrary, there is something contrary to superficial sort of happy clappy Christianity that Jesus is talking about here. A spiritual mourning, as Jesus commends here though, is it's not a life life of sadness over the loss of life. It's not a sorrow over disappointing setbacks in life. It's not a even just physical weeping of tears, although that could accompany conviction over sin. There's something else going on here. What is Jesus teaching? What is true mourning? What is good mourning all about? And what must you do about it? It's the third thing I want us to consider here for a little bit of time. Now, just as we saw with poor in spirit last week, to mourn, as Jesus is talking about here, is fundamentally spiritual. It means that you're, very simply, you're going to grieve over your sin more than you will over any setbacks in life. A convicted sinner is, is pained over their sin because they know that they deserve God's judgment. They know that they have defaced God, so to speak. True mourning is not sorrow because you're simply afraid of God's punishment, but it's sorrow because you've actually um, lived contrary to God's laws. It's sorrow because you've embarrassed yourself in front of God more than in the world's eyes. And true sorrow, then, a Christian must mourn over his or her sin. Because if here's what sin does. Sin turns you into an enemy against God. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin puts hostility between you and God. So you must mourn also because sin is a profound loss. Grieve that you've deprived yourself of God's goodness. You grieve because you've lost, in some sense, communion with God. You grieve because, in a way, God's face is no longer smiling on you when you continue in sin. I mean, we grieve any time we lose something, don't we? If you were to lose $1,000 today, or if you are to lose a friendship, or if you are to have a massive loss of face in front of your friends or colleagues, would you not grieve over that? Would you not sorrow in some way? I mean, how much more then ought we to grieve and sorrow when we lose face in front of God, when we lose God's sort of a sense of his grace and riches, his blessings? How much more should we sorrow when sin damages our relationship with him? In some sense, distances ourselves from God. You know, when Mary, when Mary went to the tomb after Jesus' death, searching for Jesus, she was crying because Jesus wasn't there. She said, where have you taken my Lord? When we sin, there's something similar going on. Jesus is somehow distant from us. 
We should grieve over how our sin is putting distance between us and God. Or if you look at the Apostle Paul, for example, in his life, you may remember how he, he describes his agony over sin in Romans chapter 7. And Paul is, I think, to the point of tears almost. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You can hear it, can't you? Paul's sorrow, his grief over sin. This is the attitude that someone who is truly born of the Spirit. This is the attitude of someone who's truly following Christ. This is the attitude that someone will display in their lives. If I could illustrate it this way, a story that a man named Phillips Brooks, Philip Brooks once told what this might look like in someone's life. There was a man... Um, who grew up kind of skirting the edges of the law. Uh, he did not have an honest um, job. He sort of lived a tumble life. He, was, uh, he managed in the midst of this rough and tumble upbringing to avoid serious altercations with the law for a time. His favorite saying at that time was, well, I live my own life. I only look out for number one. Eventually, however... His self-confidence got the better of him. And he was caught and convicted of a serious crime, and he went to prison for several years. And while he was in prison, he's hard. He's unrepentant. When he's in prison, he says, what I do is my business, nobody else's business. I'm going to not make the same mistakes twice when I get out of here, that's all. And eventually he is released from prison. And when he's released, he has nowhere else to go for a time, and so he thinks... Well, I'll just uh, spend a few nights at my mother's home until I find something better. And he hasn't seen his mother in years. The last time he saw his mother was in the courtroom. She was plump. She was rosy. Yes, tearful at what was going on. But when he returns home, the person who greets him at the door is a worn-out, gray-haired, old, tired-looking woman. And he doesn't realize right away who this person is and what has happened. He just stares at her in stunned silence. And then it hits him and he cries. And he says, Mother, what have I done to you? And you see, it's in that moment that the tears come. It wasn't the punishment. It wasn't the prison time that did it. It's when he was confronted with what he had done to his own mother that brought him to tears. Now, friends, it's a simple story, but it has a simple point to illustrate what I mean. When you're truly convicted over your sin, you've come to a realization of the damage you've done in your relationship with God and other people you suddenly realize the offense, the shame it brings on yourself. Like similar to when Nathan confronted King David after David's sin, 
Nathan says, you are the man. And David just sort of crumples when he realizes what he's done. Friends, this is the test. This is the test. If you are a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, if you feel nothing at all over your sin, if you've become completely numb to it, if you don't bat an eye at it, then by all accounts, friends, you're not a Christian. But if you object, if you object to the sin into your life, if you experience a genuine sorrow, if you experience a a desire to reform, then you're truly mourning, or at least have begun to mourn as Paul was in Romans 7 and as Christ calls us to here in this beatitude. A Christian must mourn over their sin. But also to be true mourning, to be good mourning, you also, as a Christian, must mourn over other people's sin. That's what the Bible shows us. Mourning doesn't just stop with yourself. As a true citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you will grieve whenever you confront sin in this world. The true mourning, though, is it's not like that Pharisee, right? When you grieve at other people's sins, it's not like that Pharisee who looked at the tax collector and said, thank God that I'm not like that man. That's not what mourning at other people's sins looks like. When you see other people fixated on their sins rather than God, when you see people blind in their sin rather than brokenhearted, their, their unhappiness and discontent, it's an anguish over their moral confusion in this world. I mean, that's again what David, the life of David, what he models for us. Psalm 119, he says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Friends, that's the attitude. It's a disposition that we have as well, we should have as well as Christians. Where the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah wept over the city of Jerusalem because they refused to repent. They had such a hard heart. Jeremiah is known as the, the weeping prophet because they refused to turn away from sin. My friends, where else do you see such sorrow over other sins, sins in this world, than in the life of Jesus himself? As his disciples, we can learn and imitate from Jesus' sorrow. You know, you never see in the emotional life, if I can put it that way. You never see in the emotional life of Jesus in the Bible, you never see him laughing. Does that mean Jesus didn't have a sense of humor? No, I think Jesus did have a sense of humor. But you never read of Jesus laughing. We read of Jesus's wide emotional life in the Bible. He is righteously angry. Jesus is deeply compassionate and kind, and Jesus grieves. He mourns. We see this several times in the Gospels. You remember, perhaps, the most well-known time Jesus grieves is when? When his friend Lazarus dies. You remember this? Lazarus dies. Jesus waits to go to see to Lazarus, and when he does, his friend is in the tomb, And then there's just those simple two words, Jesus wept. Why did Jesus wept? Why did he weep? Did Jesus weep because he was afraid Lazarus would not enjoy eternal life? No. 
Jesus knew that Lazarus would rise again, that he would have eternal life. Jesus wept, I mean, partially because of the ugliness of sin that took his friend's life. Jesus is is deeply grieved that Lazarus' death because sin that had entered the world had caused that death. This is why Jesus weeps. He weeps at the horrible, the evil ugliness of sin that robbed his friend of life. Sin, this is what it does. It upsets the beauty of life. And this is why Jesus grieved. And this is why, just as according to Isaiah's prophecy, it says, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We're also told in Luke 19, Jesus weeps another time. You remember, Lord Jesus, he approaches Jerusalem in Luke 19, and he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Why? He grieved. He grieved more than any other person because he knew so deeply. He grieved more than any person over the eternal punishment that waited these unrepentant sinners. He grieved because more than any person, he was aware of how they could be saved. So it only pained him more when these people were presented with the Messiah, the Christ, who could save them, and yet they rejected salvation right there out of hand. It must have been agonizing for Jesus to see their hard-heartedness when their salvation lay right in front of them. Friends, you see, Jesus must mourn. It's really not a choice. He must mourn because he knows what this world would have been like if sin had never entered the world in the first place. You see, good mourning must sorrow over sin wherever it's found, as Jesus himself shows us. Not only that, one more thing for true or good mourning that you as a Christian must take into account is that we as Christians must mourn over sin in the church. Not just in the world out there, but specifically when we encounter it in the church. If the church is going to restore, if we're going to restore our witness in the world, then we must first look at ourselves and grieve over the sin that takes place among Christians. This is the type of sorrow that Ezra displayed after God's people are released from exile. They return to the land. They begin rebuilding the temple. They begin rebuilding the city. And as they do, you remember, the people, contrary to God's commands, they're intermarrying with the non-believers, the pagans, essentially, that are living around them. They're intermarrying with all these idolaters. And Ezra, when he hears about this, what does he do? He grieves at the pollution by intermarrying with pagan believers. And so he says in Ezra 9, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. He grieved over how the church had intermarried, intermingled with the pollution of the world. So friends, when we see that the church, similar to those returned exiles, when we see how the church is intermarrying, so to speak, intermingling, becoming more and more like the world around us, when it excuses sin, 
then it should cause us to mourn as well. It should cause us to go deep into prayer, asking that God in his mercy would once again turn the hearts of his people back to him. And this is how change is going to happen in the church. This is how people are going to be revived and reformed is by praying that God would send his spirit afresh so that people would grieve over their sins and to not be conformed to the world, but be conformed to Christ. If we're to be true followers of Jesus, we must mourn over sin. To borrow from St. Augustine, God had only one son without sin, but he has none without sorrow. If you're a child of God, you must mourn over your own sin, over other sin, over sin in the world. But that brings up then, how can you mourn this way? We know there's a good mourning. We know what good mourning is. How can you mourn that way? Well, you need to know two things. You need to know, first of all, you need to be aware of what prevents us from mourning in this way, the hindrances. But also you need to know that there are helps for us to mourn in this way, the good mourning. Uh, my, my favorite Puritan, Thomas Watson, when he uh, uh, wrote on this, he, he gave nine hindrances uh, to spiritual mourning. I'm only going to give you three. I'll spare you some of those hindrances, I guess you could say. But hindrance number one to our spiritual mourning is simply this. Maybe it's obvious, but it's so obvious we sometimes miss it. Hindrance number one, the love of sin. The love of sin. If you harbor a sin in your heart, you can't repent of it. If you love a sin more than you love Christ, you can't grieve over it. If you cherish a sin, you're unwilling to give it up. It will stop up your heart from grieving over it. If you think of a hose, a hose that carries water through, you stick a rock in that hose, it's going to plug up the hose from carrying water to where it needs to go. Similarly, in your heart, if you're harboring the love of a sin, if you love the pleasures, so to speak, of that sin, it's going to be difficult for you to give it up, to part from it. You can't grieve over a sin if you still love it. Tears won't come. So hindrance number one you need to be aware of. The love of sin and pleasure of a sin. Are you harboring a sin that you love? But also number two, hindrance number two. What prevents us from a spiritual mourning? It's simply this. It's really a selfish concern that mourning is going to lead to my melancholy. It's a selfish concern that spiritual sorrow is going to lead to me just being sort of a sad person in life all the time. I mean, isn't that why, I believe it's why, so many churches don't talk about sin, don't try to expose people's sins. Why? Because they don't want want people to feel unhappy. Right? We're afraid. We're afraid that this kind of searching is going to make us sort of obsessive. What we say in English sometimes is navel-gazing, just staring at our bellies, trying to understand what's wrong all the time, just sort of sucking the joy out of life 
Is that what's going to happen if we really take up Jesus' words here and take them seriously? Mourning over sin? Just going to be a dour Christian all my life? No. I don't believe so, friends. In fact, I think the opposite. I think the opposite. If you don't mourn over your sin, you're actually not going to know true joy. Why? Well, think about what sin is. Sin, the Bible describes it as a disease. When sin is compared to a disease and you don't treat it, how can you be, how can you be happy? Or when the Bible describes sin as having broken bones and you do nothing about it, how can you be joyful? Or sin that makes you shamefully naked. Or sin that turns you into a beast. Or worse, that sin not only makes us like animals, but even makes us like the devil himself. When you are unrepentant of sin then, how can you be happy? With all of these things plaguing you. No, no. If you truly come to an end of yourself, as Jesus is talking about here, someone who's truly poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, someone who is truly mournful over their sin, empty of themselves, only then are you going to start to see where true joy can be found. True comfort. True comfort to confess your sin and to be cleansed of it, to find healing of it. Only by sowing tears of joy Excuse me, only by sowing tears of sorrow will you reap a bounty of joy, as Psalm 126 says. So hindrance number two is a selfish concern that mourning will make you melancholy. But let me give you one more, one that I think is so common we often forget about it. What keeps you from mourning over sin and me mourning from sin? It's simply this, procrastination. Is procrastination. How often in the Christian life do we know something, but we put it off? We wait. You know, perhaps, I believe many of us are convicted that spiritual mourning is good mourning. The problem is we just wait and say, I'll do it tomorrow. Why do we do that? So many things in our lives that we don't put off, friends. If you're suffering from a deadly illness, are you going to wait to go to the hospital? If a city is under attack, if it's under siege, are you going to wait to call in help and reinforcements? If you've got a large inheritance coming to you, are you going to wait to go claim it? So why do we procrastinate and delay when it comes to mourning over our sin? Why delay asking God for his rich mercy and comfort? It's foolish to put off mourning for sin. In fact, the the longer you put off mourning for sin, the harder it's going to be. We're just going to become more and more numb to our sin. We're going to become more and more obstinate. And friends, if you broke your arm, just think about what would happen if you broke your arm and waited to go to the doctor. What's going to happen? You're going to be in pain longer. You're going to develop a serious infection probably. You could be permanently deformed and you're going to have long-lasting problems in your joints. 
you wouldn't delay. You need to go to the doctor right away. In the same way, we need to seriously sorrow over our sin immediately, not waiting for the last moment in life. Procrastination over sorrow of sin is just going to leave you in a worse condition. And the worst of it is, if you really wait, it could even damn you. fact of the matter is, friends, none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. That our lives could be taken from us any day now. God has given you and me time and opportunity to mourn over sin today. Today. So when it comes to these hindrances to mourning, beware of a love of sin. Beware of a selfish desire For happiness, beware of procrastination. But there are some things that will help you to mourn a good morning. Not just to be aware of hindrances, although that's very important, but also to employ a couple things that's really going to help us in the Christian life to mourn, as Jesus is talking about here. Let me give you just two simple ways to do this in our lives. Number one, if we're going to have good spiritual mourning in our lives, we need to have self-examination. Self-examination. After all, Paul says something of the same in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, when he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. Now, friends, it's a good thing, a good practice to get into at the end of each day you just sort of sit down for a while and look back on how that day went. You can kind of mentally run through what you said and did or what you did not say and do. Just ask yourself some questions. Simple questions you could even write down and ask yourself at the end of a, at the end of the day. What have I done with this day, with this time that God has given to me? What words have I used? What actions have I taken? What actions have I not taken? How have I treated others? What have I done and said to bring glory to God? Where have I fallen short of God's will? Those are good questions to start you examining your your heart because the more that you do that, the more that you'll become aware of indwelling sin in your life. You explore and ask yourself, why did I act that way? Why do I do this? What is driving me on like this? Why am I so quick to sinful anger? Why does envy steal my heart? Why am I so puffed up with pride? Why do I continue to disobey? Why can't I control myself? Give serious examination every single day to your heart. Exposing yourself in this way. Because the more you do, the more you'll discover your sin. The more you'll hate it. The more it'll become repulsive to you. And therefore, you will mourn over it. And as you do that, you'll be driven to Christ, I promise you, because this is what Paul himself says. When he is driven to mourn, he then follows it it up with, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I I myself serve the law of God with my mind. So friends, the more... You examine your heart, the more you will be driven, not just to sorrow over your sin, but driven to Christ himself. 
source of comfort. And that leads to the second help here, quite naturally, actually. Not only self-examination, but seek God for help. Seek God for help. What do I mean by that? It's God's promise to you to give you a sorrowful heart over sin. He says in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's a promise. When you seek God's help, he will give you this attitude that Jesus is talking about. It's God's promise that he'll pour out on you a spirit of mourning. Zechariah 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Friends, God is not stingy. God is also not a sadist. He will not let you wallow in grief. He will lift you up again on eagle's wings. You seek him out. He will bless you. He will deliver you and comfort you. This is his promise. So examine your hearts, but also seek God and ask him for help. But then finally, we are told here a promise from Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's the consequence of our spiritual mourning. Brothers and sisters, our goal in the Christian life, in a sense, is not mourning. That's not the the end of our Christian life, right? Mourning is leading us to something else. It's the comfort that Jesus is talking about here. So let me remind you that when Jesus declares blessed, blessed are those poor in spirit, those who mourn, what he means by that word is that those who do those things are approved by God, accepted by God. That's what the word blessed means here. He smiles approvingly on the mournful, both in the present, in the present and in the future. Now, comfort here, when Jesus says they'll be comforted, now, friends, that's not that you're going to have an easy life from here on out. Jesus is not saying here comfort like, well, you can just kick up your legs and relax for the rest of your life. No more more troubles, no more cares. You can just buy that lazy boy and it'll be fine. No, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that those who mourn will be comforted both in this life and in the future. If mourning is caused by grief over sin, then it follows that those who mourn will be comforted by God's forgiveness. His forgiveness now. That's what Jesus speaks of here. This is the comfort. Forgiveness of sin. Spiritual mourning is in a, in a way, like one person said, holy medicine. It's putting the balm on the pain caused by sin. Because if you truly grieve over your sin, God promises to heal you, to restore you. If you're truly mourning over your sin, in fact, 
you're already in a state of repentance. And only Christians can truly confess their sin and be saddened by it. Without sorrow over sin, there can be no true joy. But someone who is sorrowful are comforted by the objective fact that Jesus has died for sinners. That there is no more condemnation against you who are in Christ. You have been reconciled to God. You're forgiven already. The mournful sinner is so convicted, he knows he's helpless. But he welcomes the full provision laid up for him in Jesus Christ. There's nothing to prevent God forgiving you of sin except for you going to him and asking for it. And Jesus promises that those who mourn over sin today will receive comfort today. So true sorrow over sin leads to true joy over salvation. We don't need to live miserably in the Christian life. We do live soberly with sorrow over sin, but at the same time with joy over forgiveness of sin now. But there's also freedom then. Forgiveness and joy now, but also freedom then. This is also the comfort that we have, the promise that Jesus gives here. I think Jesus' beatitude could be restated to something like this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be immediately comforted, and they will continue to be comforted. You know, if you truly mourn over sin, we see the sin in the world, we're going to mourn over the sadness and brokenness that we see in this world around us. You're going to be saddened by the idolatry you see. You're going to be saddened by the worldliness you see, saddened by the immorality that we see. And after thousands of years of human history and progress, things are not much better now than they were thousands of years ago in a sense. Yes, we have better technology. Yes, we have um, progressed in so many different ways. But the fact is, We can't do away completely with diseases. We are still fighting wars. There's still conflict. We can't stop corruption. We can't stop wasting earth resources. What hope is there in the world? What are you banking on? If you're a Christian, you're banking on, you're trusting in a blessed hope, a future promise you're comforted with the promise of freedom then when Christ comes again and fully brings in the kingdom of heaven you live with the promise God's promise that one day he will make all the sad things come untrue in this world as Paul says in 2nd Corinthians 4 for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When you take that on faith, how can you not be comforted? Because a day is coming when Jesus will come again. And that day, he won't just weep over sin. He will completely clear away all sin. He'll wipe away all the pollution of sin. He'll eliminate it once and for all. And that's why John can say in Revelation 21 in this vision that in the new heavens and the new earth, 
there will be no more crying or mourning because all sin that is, that is in this world right now will be completely done away with. We'll be completely free of sin. That's a blessed hope. That is freedom then. That is the comfort that we have when we do have a mournful heart that leads us to joy in Christ. One last thing. There's salvation now. If you're not a Christian yet, then please understand that Jesus is teaching here how you can be forgiven of your sin and enter into the kingdom of heaven today. That comfort is not found in anything in this world. True joy can only come through true sorrow. It's a countercultural mindset that will lead you to salvation in Jesus Christ. Friends, if this is you, and today you're feeling burdened by the mistakes in your life, things that you know have offended God, you ache for a restored relationship with God, you sense a feeling of guilt building up inside of you. And Jesus is speaking to you today, and I'm here to tell you to take this to God. Don't wait. Seek him out. Because he loves the mournful. His promise to you is sure. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You can know his comfort today. And for all of us, I'm going to leave you with a question. What beatitude will you live by in this life? Happy are the hardened, for they never let life hurt them. Happy are the heartless, for they escaped all the pain of this life. Happy are the entertained, for they become numb to life's troubles. Or do you confess that you cannot save yourself? Are you pained by the sin of your life? Do you live by Jesus' beatitude? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Know that good mourning and good comfort is today and forever. Amen. Let's go to God and thank him for his word. Please pray with me.